you have a copy of the scriptures this morning, let me invite you to turn once again to the book of Genesis and to the second chapter. And we are in the midst of an ongoing exposition of the book of Genesis, this foundational book in the Christian scriptures. And today uh, we are at Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. Genesis 2, verses 18 through 25. Let me invite you, as you are able, let's stand in honor of the reading and the hearing of God's word. Again, I'm reading from Genesis 2, beginning in verse 18, wherein Moses faithfully records. And the Lord God said, It is not good that the man should be alone. I will make him and help meet for him. And out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air and brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And Adam gave names to all cattle and to the fowl of the air and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found and help meet for him. And the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam, and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib which the Lord God had taken from man made he a woman and brought her unto the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother, and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. May God bless today, once again, the reading and the hearing of his word, and let us join together in prayer. Let us pray. Gracious and loving God, we do stand today before and under thy word. We ask, O God, that you would give us the illumination of the Holy Spirit, that you would open our eyes, unstop our ears, loosen our hearts and minds to be able to receive and cherish, uh, to heed thy word as it is given to us today. We ask this in Christ's name and for his sake. Amen. And you may be seated. The Bible describes three foundational institutions that are established by God. The first of these is the family, based upon the institution of marriage between one man and one woman. Another institution is the church, composed of the people of God, whose duty it is to serve Him and to glorify Him. And then, Thirdly, there is the civil government spoken of so ably by the Apostle Paul in Romans 13, the civil authority that bears the sword and uh, suppresses evildoers and gives security and peace to society. So the family, marriage, the church, civil government, these institutions established by God for man's good, for man's flourishing. The first of those institutions established by God, again, was that of marriage. 
Marriage between one man and one woman in a covenant union, a one flesh union that is meant to last a lifetime. And it was established, we learn here in Genesis 2, before the fall, before sin enters the picture, as we will see in Genesis 3. And so, like the establishment of the Sabbath that we saw earlier in Genesis 2, we can say that the institution of marriage is a a pre-fall institution. It is a creation ordinance. That it is a part of God's good, original design for His creation. And we have opportunity today in looking at Genesis 2, 18-25 to understand this institution which God has established. As we look to our text, we can divide it into three parts. First of all, there is described for us in verses 18-20 through 20, the quest for a help meet for man. Secondly, then, in verses 21 and 22, we have a description of an unusual spiritual surgery, we might call it. And then finally, in verses 23 through 25, we have a description of what we will call the one flesh union. And so let's walk through the passage together and let's look at each of these three parts. And we'll begin uh, looking at this first part, verses 18 through 20 which describes a quest for a help meet for man. And we'll notice uh, with respect to our ongoing exposition that this comes just after uh, we have this uh, sort of uh, second, um, more uh, detailed description of the creation of man. Uh, There was the description already in Genesis 1, Uh, Verses 26 through 28 of man having been made in the image of God. And also at the end of verse 27, it says that God made them male and female. But now we have a more detailed explanation that is given to us here of the special creation of man and the distinction made between the the two flavors, the two types uh, of mankind, male and female. And this comes just after also what we had ended upon last time in verses 15 through 17, the covenant of life or the covenant of creation or the covenant of works as it is sometimes called. Did the vision article about this this week. So perhaps you read that where the Lord gave, uh, first of all, Uh, a great blessing, a generous blessing, provision unto mankind in the garden to eat of anything that was there. But he also gave a prohibition that they were not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there came with that also a warning that in the day that they would eat thereof, it says in verse 17, thou shalt surely die. And this is that covenant of life. And as we'll see in Genesis 3, This will be broken by the first man and the first woman, and they will have to have the consequences of that. And that is extended to us, hasn't it, through ordinary generation that we have received in ourselves also uh, this original sin alongside of our actual transgressions. But before we get there, we have this more detailed account, again, of the special creation of woman. 
the completion, uh, the completion of the creation of man is, is not just the, the male, but also the female. And so the special creation of woman and the establishment of marriage. And it begins in verse 18 with these words. And the Lord God said. And if you've been with us in this series, you know that this echoes something that we've heard many times. It's repeated over and over in in the very first chapter. And this had begun, uh, if you remember right at the the very start in verse 3. And God said, let there be light. Genesis 1-3. And so it's, it's, it's the... God decreeing by the fiat power of his word, by the word of his power. And so uh, this uh, description of the special creation of woman, the establishment of the institution of marriage begins with this this sort of decretal word of God that is being uh, proclaimed. And then uh, we read, by the way, we notice there it's the Lord God is that special combination of the, the name Lord, of all capitals there, that special four-consonant name for God, revealed name for God, Jehovah, and then the word Elohim, God, and that's the, that's the title for God, that combination title that you see repeated in Genesis chapters 2 and 3. And then, though, we have this, I, I guess we could call it a, a, a surprising or a striking statement. And the Lord God said... It is not good that the man should be alone. We know that God is a perfect God. We know that all of his works are perfect. Um, We know that there's no sin. Sin doesn't enter the picture till chapter 3. And so when it says here, when God looks and says it is not good, he does not mean that there is sin or evil. And this is also striking because Up to this point, we've had the statement repeated many times about the goodness of all that God had made. And remember that the the crowning of that was in chapter one, verse 31, where there's kind of a mega declaration of the goodness of, of all that God has made. It says in chapter one, verse 31, and God saw everything that he made and behold, it was very good. But on the heels of that, then. We have this statement being made that God says, God declares, it is not good that the man should be alone. Well, what is the not good? It's not evil. The point here is that the creation of man, the special creation of man was not yet complete. The Lord God in his mercy notices that the man is yet alone. And so man is not yet complete. Most importantly, man does not yet have, without woman, the generative capacity that was given by God in His grace to the rest of the creation, to the plants and to the animals, that they would be fruitful and multiply. And remember, God had given a... a, a, a a mandate to mankind. He had blessed them. If you look back at chapter 1 and verse 28. And said be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and subdue it. And so without woman there's not yet a means for man to fulfill the mandate. That has been 
given unto him. And so we read in chapter 2 and verse 18 that the Lord uh, makes this determination. I will make him and help meet for him. I love the AV language. The modern transit just can't improve on that. I will make him and help meet or fitting for him. That word help has been somewhat controversial in modern times. Some feminists have seen it as an insult. You mean your Bible says a woman is only a helper? That's what they say. That's patriarchal. But they neglect, do they not, the emphasis that has already been found here within this account in Genesis 1.27 when it described the spiritual equality of men and women. That they are both made the image and likeness of God. Male and female created he them. On the other hand, some have overcorrected. I recently saw someone interpret this word here, the Hebrew word, and they said that word means a warrior companion. He did not yet have the warrior companion meet for him. But woman is not to man just another fellow soldier in the trench. The key word, perhaps, to help us understand what help means here would be the corresponding description of a help meet, meaning fit for him. Man, at this point, without woman, is missing a companion who will complete and complement him and fill him out, as it were, so that he might best meet and fulfill all his potential as the crown of God's creation. He will be less than he might be without this special companion. This word help is not meant to diminish the nature, the essence, the ontology of women, nor to demean a woman's role in life with respect to man. Many have noted that this same word in Hebrew is even used at times to describe God in the way that God assists and provides for man. So the same term is found in Psalm 33, verse 20. Our soul waiteth for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. It's found in Psalm 121, verses 1 and 2. I will lift up mine eyes unto the hills from whence cometh my help. My help cometh from the Lord, which made heaven and earth. Same term used to describe God and the way that he assists and helps man is used here to describe a woman as well. You think that's low praise for women? Hardly. That's high praise. In verse 19, we are taken back to the earlier days of creation, day five and the early part of day six. As we read, and out of the ground, 
The Lord God, there's the combination name that's used here in Genesis 2 and 3. The Lord God formed every beast of the field and every fowl of the air. Let's just pause there for a moment. So he takes us back to days 5 and 6. And you can look back to day 5 in chapter 1, verses 20 to 23. The day on which the sea creatures and the fowl uh, were made. And there was also a blessing to them in verse 22. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the sea and let the fowl multiply in the earth. And then in the early part of day 6, there had been the creation of the land creatures. Look at verse 24 of chapter 1. And God said, let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind. And there are three sort of categories listed there. Cattle, creeping thing, and the beast of the earth after his kind. And we noted that that there seem to be three types of these categories. The word that's rendered as cattle, you know by now, is the root for our English word behemoth. That's the Hebrew word. Then the creeping things, and then the beasts, and there's sort of maybe the, the domesticated animals, the creeping things, and then the wild animals, we would call them. Here, when we, when we look over at chapter 2 and verse 19, it's kind of a, 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 a combination, a description of how God had formed from the ground as he had formed the man. If you look at Genesis 2-7, these uh, animals, and uh, it, it, it mentions here, the beast of the field and the fowl of the air. And then it says in verse 19 that he brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. And whatsoever Adam called every living creature, that was the name thereof. And so uh, we might remember that, uh, that earlier in the creation narrative that it had been God who had given names to various parts of the creation. If you look back at uh, chapter 1 and verse 5, and God called the light day and the darkness he called night. Um, If you look at verse 8 of Genesis 1, and God called the firmament heaven. And we talked then about how it's God's prerogative to name things because it's his ownership of them. And remember, I drew an analogy between it's the duty of a parent to give a name to a child. They may grow up and not like the name. I don't know. They may grow up and love the name, but the parents get to name the child. We don't take a vote in the church to name children. Grandparents don't get to name children. And it's, it's part of the special relationship that you have with them. You name them. And here God shows his intimate ownership, responsibility over the creation he gives us. But now... With these creatures, God delegates this responsibility to uh, the first man to give a name unto uh, these various creatures. And you'll notice again when you look at verse 20, it says, And God gave names to all the cattle, the behemoth, and to the fowl of the air, and to every beast of the field. And it's interesting because it combines, again, some of the, the terms that were used from the day four and day five. And just as a a side remark, the common language here in this description reminds us, uh, contra many modern scholars, that there are not two creation accounts clumsily joined together here, but there's one unified account. The same terms are used Describing the Genesis 1 accounts of the creation of these creatures in, on day 4 and day, uh, day, day uh, 5 and, and 6, rather. 
And the, the description here on day six of uh, Adam's naming of all these animals. Can you imagine what a task this must have been that was given to Adam to name all the creatures that God had made? Adam was, was made in this responsibility a scientist and a naturalist and a linguist all at once. He had to do this great work. And we've noted earlier in this series the implications that can be drawn from the account of the creation of these creatures on day, days uh, five and six, that man uh, has been made to have a special bond with the created order and especially with the animals as his fellow creatures. Men typically find delight in observing animals, in caring for domesticated animals, in enjoying wildlife, and even including things now after the fall, doing hunting and so forth. Numerous, numerous studies have shown that having an animal to care for often helps stave off loneliness and depression. There's a special bond that we have stamped upon us, special relationship that we have with animals. I remember when we were living in Hungary years ago as missionaries, and uh, the Hungarians have a great love for dogs. Many people in the capital city live in these high-rise apartment buildings, but they'll have a little dog. And uh, when we would go down and we would go to the newsstand, uh, one of the most popular uh, magazines back in the pre-internet days when they actually had newsstands and magazines they were selling. But there was a national magazine that was called Kutya, dog. And it was all just all these pictures of dogs. And I would see people riding the tram, the, the subway, buses, and they got these, this magazine and they would just love to look through these pictures of dogs. They love dogs. There, there's a, there's a, a love that human beings uh, have uh, for animals. Having pets can be a wonderful thing. Going on a safari trip to see the animals and to take pictures of them would likely prove very enjoyable. We had a one time hosted a guest pastor uh, in our house overnight from Zambia. And he showed us pictures uh, of of the things, the wildlife that he could see just from his home, not far from his home in Zambia. And uh, uh, it was just wonderful to see these these amazing creatures that we had only seen, you know, on through pictures or film. And he sees them all the time where he lives. Animals are really cool and they're really wonderful. But. No matter how wonderful a pet can be, no matter how wonderful a safari might be for a man, it cannot compare to having a woman by his side, a wife, a help meet for him. One commentator notes, the reason why God brings the animals before the man is so that man should realize his need for a partner. 
God brought all those animals. Well, there's a male and a female for that. And, a ma- and wait, where is my better half? Where is my part? And so at the end of verse 20, we read, but for Adam, there was not found an help meet for him or fitting for him. This brings us to the second part of our passage, which is verses 21 and 22, which is a description of what I've called here a spiritual surgery. And so what we notice is that the Lord God did not leave man in his state of loneliness, of aloneness, or in his state of of being incomplete. And so the Lord determines to make woman as a perfect companion for man. And indeed, as Deuteronomy 32.4 says of God, his work is perfect. And so he determines to make this creature man who will complement man. And so uh, he brings this to reality through an act, again, that we might call spiritual surgery. We read in verse 21, and the Lord God, there's our combination title, and the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon Adam. And he slept and he took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh instead thereof. And the rib, verse 22, which the Lord God had taken from man, made he a woman. And so uh, we have this description of the spiritual surgery. God extracts the rib, closes it up. Um, and from it makes the first woman. Now, there has been much attention given over the years to this passage, attempts to understand the reasons for God having created woman from man in this way. And although many of these suggestions must remain uh, speculative, since no clear explanation is given to us, explicit explanation is given, and we should be careful not to go beyond what is written, uh, there have been, I think, some, some explanations that seem intuitively to be right. And one of the most famous, perhaps you've heard it before, it's sometimes read at weddings, actually comes from the Puritan uh, commentator Matthew Henry. Some of you may have Matthew Henry's commentary. And if you look there at his commentary uh, on this passage in Genesis 2, uh, he says the following. He says, woman was made of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Can you believe that old sexist Puritan said that? Get the sense maybe... Everything isn't exactly the way you've been told, right? 
Well, actually, if you read Matthew Henry right after that, he has a really interesting interpretation where he also talks about how Adam here is a figure of Christ. He says, he continues just after he wrote this, he says, Adam was a figure of him that was to come. For out of the side of Christ, the second Adam, his spouse, the church, was formed. When he slept, the sleep, the deep sleep of death upon the cross, in order to which his side was opened, there came out blood and water, blood to purchase his church and water to purify it to himself. Notice then in verse 22, how that the Lord God brings the woman to the man. Verse 22, and brought her unto the man. Here is the Lord God's presentation of this special creation to Adam. Maybe as a parent, some of you have sometimes gotten a special gift for one of your children. Maybe at a birthday or Christmas. And perhaps it's a gift that you especially made for your child. Or something you knew that they really wanted and uh, you uh, earned the money to to get it and you maybe had to seek uh, stores or the internet to find it and you finally got this present, that this gift that you know that your, that your child will really love, that your child will really delight to see. Isn't it interesting how things change? When you're a child, you like to get gifts. But children, let me tell you something. You've got something better waiting ahead for you. When you get to be a parent, if that's God's will for you, you get to give gifts to your children. And it's even more fun. I have to tell you, it's even more fun than getting gifts, is giving gifts to your children. When you know something they really want and you're able to get it, it's, you just can't wait sometimes. You want to get it. You're so excited to give them this thing because you know how much they will love it and they will treasure it and they will prize it and they will delight in it. Well, if we could draw a dim analogy, we might say that perhaps God, our loving God, was like this when he made the woman for man. One commentator noted, God is like a father who presents his son with a valuable gift that is bound to please him and be cherished by him. It's as if God says, see what I have prepared for you. This brings us to the third part of our passage, verses 23 through 25. And in verse 23, we get to see the reaction of the child opening the present, receiving the present. And it says in verse 23, And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. The reaction of of Adam seems to be uh, one of, of deep and full gladness. He declares her to be bone of his bones, flesh of his flesh. There's a recognition here that he now has the helper, the help meet for him. That he now has one who is a companion who can share with him uh, in his part and her part in their common humanity. 
They are made of the same stuff, the same bone and the same flesh. To which he adds in verse 23, she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. There's a word play here in Hebrew. The Hebrew word for woman is isha. And the word for man is ish. Uh, something like uh, the, in English, the word woman comes from the word man or sounds like the word man, doesn't it? At least one scholar I read said that they don't actually come from the same stem, but they do sound alike. Uh, so from ish comes isha. We can see how the Apostle Paul read and took seriously the historicity of this description here. Again, one of the reasons we believe in the, in the historicity of the Genesis account is because the Lord Jesus received it as such, as did the apostles. But in uh, 1 Corinthians 11, Paul was dealing with a thorny issue that related to men and women in the church in Corinth, including apparently some women who were not obeying the, the elders in the church and were being unruly. And to address this, Paul went back to Genesis 2 and he wrote in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 7, For a man indeed ought not to cover his head, for as much as he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. And then he draws his conclusion that, in verse 10, 1 Corinthians 11, for this cause ought the woman to have exousia, power, on her head because of the angels. Some say a head covering, some say simply uh, a submissive spirit towards the, the elders, the officers of the church. But then Paul continues and he says in 1 Corinthians 11, 11, nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman. Neither the woman without the man in the Lord. Spiritual equality. And then he says, For as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman. He's just making the point. Guys, don't, think, don't get too heady thinking just because you were made, created first. Every one of you came from a woman. By birth. And then he says, but all things are of God. In 1 Timothy 2.13, Paul also said, for Adam was first formed, then Eve. To this then, uh, Moses adds this summary in verse 24. Therefore shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave unto his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Two definitive actions are mandated. First, a man will leave the household of his father and mother. This means he will depart from under their explicit supervision and instruction and direction. This does not mean, however, that he, he is to sever all ties or to seek no counsel from them. But it does indicate the need for a significant separation so that he can form his own independent and freestanding household, no longer beholding to that of his parents. Second, a man will cleave to his wife. He will enter into exclusive union with her. Together, they will form their own unique household, separate and distinct 
from all others and they will join in a union of mutual dependency upon one another. Moses stresses the nature of that union in verse 24 at the end of that verse when he says, and they shall be one flesh. They will leave and they will cleave and they will become one flesh. God literally, in His wisdom, made a man and a woman physically to fit together. And any attempt at any other combination is futile, irrational, and unhealthy. Not only though were a man and woman made to fit together physically, but they were meant to fit together emotionally and spiritually. They're like two Legos that they fit together. They were made to fit together and to be one flesh. In Proverbs, therefore, we read in Proverbs 18.22, Whoso findeth a wife findeth a good thing and obtaineth the favor of the Lord. And in Proverbs 30, verses 18 and 19, uh, the, the sage uh, looks with wonder at the relationship between a man and a woman. He says, there be three things which are too wonderful for me, yea, four which I know not. The way of an eagle in the air. How does, a, how does an eagle fly? That's a pretty amazing thing. The way of a serpent upon a rock. How does a How does a snake get any traction when it moves over a rock? The way of a ship in the midst of the sea. How does a ship float on? It floats on the water and doesn't sink down a big heavy ship. And the way of a man with a maid. It's a mystery, isn't it? How man and and a woman come together. They leave and they cleave and they become one flesh. Finally, in verse 25, Moses notes that they were both naked, the man and his wife, and were not ashamed. This is meant to tell us that before the fall, this is again before Genesis 3, the relationship between men and women was not stained by sinful and craven lust. One writer notes that the term for shame indicates confusion, embarrassment, and dismay. All that was missing at this time. This observer notes also that at this time they had complete faith and trust in one another. And indeed they had nothing to be ashamed of. No imprudent or immoral act lay in the past. No guilt or remorse existed. What a beautiful thing it was. Man in his innocence. There was a simplicity and an innocence in mankind that allowed husband and wife to admire the beauty of one another created by God without falling into any ungodliness. What an amazing picture. What a contrast. We're going to see eventually what's going to happen. The contrast to chapter 2 verse 25 is going to be found after the fall. If you look ahead to verse 21, where it says unto Adam also, 
And to his wife, did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them? Because that innocence would be lost. Well, friends, we've worked through the passage. I want to spend a little bit more time than we normally do on um, some application. So we don't usually finish the verses this quickly, do we? But, um, but let's, let's spend a little bit more time in application. From the teaching here, we learn that marriage, like the Sabbath, is a creation ordinance. Here are some of the things we learn about the biblical teaching on marriage. For one thing, marriage was meant to be, to use modern terms, a heterosexual union between a man and a woman. No other pairing fits this biblical standard. And that's the standard we uphold, a man and a woman. For another, marriage was also meant to be monogamous. One man and one woman. Where the man leaves and cleaves to his wife and they form their own household and they share in a one flesh union that they share with no one else. After man's fall into sin, after Genesis 3, this ideal will be tarnished. It will be attacked. We know it in our own flesh. The patriarchs, for example, will practice polygamy. Every once in a while, I remember a few years back, there was a news story that popped up. Somebody in southwest Virginia said they started practicing polygamy because it's there in the Bible. Abraham. Well, that's after Genesis 3. Go back to Genesis 2, though. That's the pre-fallen ideal, the original good design for man. To understand the Christian or the New Covenant view of marriage, we must turn to the teachings of our Lord and to the apostles. And so I want us to look briefly in exposition at two passages from the New Testament. The first one is going to be from Matthew 19, and the second one is going to be from Ephesians 5. So look over, if you would, have your Bible, and turn over to Matthew 19. We looked at this not too long ago in our exposition of the Gospel of Matthew, but let's go back and revisit this. And I want you to listen to see if you can hear the echoes here of Genesis 1 and 2. The context in Matthew 19, verse 3, is that there were Pharisees who were tempting our Lord and they were asking him, is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? So they were looking for a loophole to justify abandonment of their wives and to seek divorce. And this is Christ's answer in verse 4. Have ye not read... That he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. That's Genesis 1.27. Have you run into anybody recently who says, the Bible doesn't say anything about this or that practice? Oh, yes, it does. Christ said God made them in the beginning male and female. And then notice what he continues to say. And he said, verse 5, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother and shall cleave to his wife, 
And they twain or two shall be one flesh. Wherefore, he says in verse 6, they are no more twain, no more two, but one flesh. What's he quoting? Genesis 2.24. He's teaching what Moses recorded. And then at the end of that, he has his famous words often repeated in marriage ceremonies at the close once a wedding has been made and vows have been spoken and tokens of that pledge have been exchanged. What therefore God hath joined together, let not man put asunder. Very countercultural statement in our day, isn't it? But we notice, what does Christ uphold? He upholds Genesis 1.27. He upholds Genesis 2.24. It's not just Old Testament. This is New Testament. New Covenant standards. Look also now at Ephesians 5. We've gone from Christ. And let's look at the words of the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 5, in the beginning of uh, chapter 6, is a passage that is sometimes known as a household code. Paul's writing to the church at Ephesus. It's really interesting. There are all kinds of people there. There are men and women. There are parents and children. Um, There there are slaves and masters. Uh, Christianity has within it the seedbed for the the destruction of the institution of of slavery. But at this time, it's breaking those barriers down by having... All types of people come together, and, and this just didn't happen in the Roman world. It's, it's one thing that made Christianity so different. But we want to look at what he had to say, Paul had to say about marriage. And he starts off, look at verse 22 through verse 24, with, by addressing uh, the women or the wives. He says, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let wives be to their own husbands in everything. This is a passage, another one that many modern hearers would kind of recoil at. I mean, what do you mean wives submit to your husbands? But we must remember that for Christians, submission is not a dirty word. In fact, if you look at the verse before it, in verse 21, Paul had exhorted the the Ephesian believers submitting yourselves one to another in the fear of God. They were all to be submitting to one another, particularly be submitting to their officers within the church. James will say, submit yourselves to God. So submission is not a dirty word uh, for Christians. And notice also the woman is not to submit herself to all men. She is to submit herself to her own husband. As to the Lord, she has a special duty towards him, not to every man, but to him. And also the duty of her submission to him is grounded in the fact that he's Christ-like. She submits to him as to the Lord. That doesn't mean she doesn't submit herself to him in things that are that are not lawful. That are not Christ honoring. That are abusive. Of course not. She submits herself to him as to the Lord. And he sets up a a parallel. The woman's 
role in the marriage is like unto the church. She loves her husband, submits unto him in the way that Christ, the way that the church rather submits unto Christ. And there's there's also the part where there's a word to men. Now, in our day, people get upset with the first part of this, the word to women. But, you know, in the Roman world, in the first century when this was written, that would have been like, duh. The man is the head of the family. He's the he has the pater potestia. He has the fatherly power in the family. He's the head of the pater familia. What they would have thought was weird. What? What? You're giving instructions to husbands about duties that we have to wives. This is, believe it or not, what would have scandalized people in the first century. It's changed a little bit. But listen to this. We who are husbands, we need to listen to this. Verse 25. Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. That he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loveth his wife loveth himself. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourisheth it and cherisheth it, even as the Lord the church. Husbands, you're to love your wives in the way that Christ loves the church. How did Christ love the church? He laid down his life for the church. He died for the church. A woman will intelligently submit to a man who has a Christ-like spirit and who will lay down his life and sacrifice himself for his wife. He has a special role of responsibility, but it would be a very foolish man, wouldn't it, who wouldn't look to his wife as, as basically the prime minister in the family and his chief counselor. He's going to seek her aid and he's going to guide lovingly uh, within his household. And then Paul sums things up, revealing the mystery of this relationship. And notice how he begins. Look at verse 31. Does this sound familiar? For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother and shall be joined unto his wife and they too shall be one flesh. Genesis 2.24. Moses. Jesus. Paul. The harmony of the scriptures. And then Paul says, this is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. The, the marriage relationship reflects that. Of, it's, is it perfectly done in this life? Absolutely not. We can all confess our failures and faults one to another. But husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. The church is to be intelligently submitted to their husbands as, 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 uh, as the church is to Christ. And then notice there's another insight. Look at verse 33. I often try to point this out when I do marriage counseling, premarital counseling. Nevertheless, let every one of you in particular so love his wife even as himself, and the wife see that she reverences her husband. You'll notice that the terms are not the same terms, and they're not interchangeable. 
I don't think it's an accident. He tells the Christian husbands that they are to love their wives even as themselves. And he tells the wives that they are to reverence their husbands. And this is, I think, a very important spiritual insight into anthropology, the doctrine of man. If you're in a marriage and you have your ups and downs, you have your struggles, you're figuring, you're trying to figure it out. You know, welcome fellow pilgrim, fellow struggler. Here's some insights from the Apostle Paul. Uh, he tells husbands to love their wives. And maybe he's telling us that, that God has made women in such a way that one of their greatest needs in marriage is to feel loved, to feel cherished. And he tells wives to give reverence to their husbands. And maybe he's telling us that one of the special needs of a man is to feel respect. Now, he should earn that respect through godly and just behavior. But if you want to pump up a man, admire him, respect him, compliment him when he's doing something right, even how, that, even how, how rare that might be, compliment him, build him up, Encourage him. This is why we don't stop and ask for directions. We don't want to let anybody know that we don't know everything. Show some respect for him, and uh, he may well respond positively to that. For the wives, show love, cherish, and she may well respond favorably to that. Well, friends, Again, we see this great harmony of the scriptures. The great Protestant reformer Martin Luther, a former monk, married Catherine von Bora, a former nun, in 1525. Because Luther, again, had had a reformation in his own heart about the Bible and wanted to live by the Bible and he couldn't find biblical justification for a celibate priesthood and so forth. And he also saw all the wonderful things that there are in scripture about families and about households. And he thought it was his duty as a man to, to seek this out. He was sort of, Catherine von Bora had escaped from a convent and it wasn't exactly a love match uh, in the beginning. In fact, Luther wrote and he said, I am not infatuated with her though I will cherish my wife. She grew on him, though, and he grew on her. So that later on, he would write, I would not exchange Katie for France or Venice because God has given her to me and other women have worse faults. By the end, however, they enjoyed a very warm and happy marriage and a beautiful Christian home that was very often open to others and was given in hospitality. So much so that towards the end of their marriage, towards the end of their lives, Luther gave her perhaps the greatest compliment that he could give 
when he referred to the book of Galatians, which he loved so dearly, as my Catherine von Bora. Marriage is not essential for all men. I need to make that clear. If you're here and you're single, marriage is not the calling for all people. It says that in 1 Corinthians 7. And we need to make clear that marriage is not an eternal institution, humanly speaking. Marriage is only temporary. In glory, in the final state, men will neither marry nor be given in marriage, but Christ said we shall be like the angels. We will not be angels, but we will be like the angels. But in this life, if you have been called to marriage, we need to look and remember that Christ has reclaimed marriage and he has called for a return to its pre-fallen roots in Genesis 2.24. And Paul reminded us that this serves as a model for Christ's own relationship to his church. May those of us who are married seek faithfulness to this teaching. And may the church, which encompasses both married and single people, uphold it without wavering. Amen? Let me invite you to stand together. Let's join in prayer. Gracious and loving God, we do give thee thanks today for thy word, for the instruction that we are giving about life, to understand ourselves, to understand the world in which we live, to understand our church, to understand Christ, to understand who thou art. And so we give thee thanks for all these insights. Help us to learn from them. Help us to grow in our knowledge and our, our love of Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen.